0: Well, uh, morning, we're going to be back in the book of Acts. This morning, looking at Acts 17, if you want to be turning there, you'll find that on page 926 of the Pew Bible. Um, I will say, as I came in this morning, several people asked me about the fact that I'm wearing glasses today. I'd love to say that that's because uh, we're talking about Acts 17 this morning, and in Acts 17, we're going to Athens, and Athens was the intellectual center of the ancient world. And I'd love to say that I'm simply wearing that just to look a little smarter. Um, maybe that's the case. Uh, Truth is, I was wrestling with my children the other night and managed to stab myself in the eye with my own thumb. And embarrassing enough, none of my children is above the age of four, so they took me. But in any case, maybe this will better represent life in Athens in the intellectual center of the world. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're near the end of a series on the book of Acts, and each week as we've opened Acts, we've, we've been asking this question, what is this text? tell us about the mission of God. Because in Acts, we see that God is on a mission. He's on a mission to us with the grace and love and forgiveness that come in Jesus. And amazingly enough, not only is He on a mission to us, He is then on a mission through us as He uses us, His people, to bring the hope of that gospel to the world around us. He's on this mission to us and through us. And we're going to see how that moves forward here in uh, Acts chapter 17. So before we uh, read, please please pray with me. Father, we ask that you, You would open Your Word to our hearts this morning. We ask that You would open our hearts to Your Word. Would You make this come alive? It is Your Word. Would You speak to us through it and through Your Spirit, that we might know You better, that we might come to love You more, and we might come to walk more faithfully, in line with your purposes in the world, and we ask this humbly and expectantly as your people. Please meet with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 17. We're going to pick up in verse 16. If you remember from last week, we've, we've skipped over a chapter or so. But Paul is on a missionary journey with Silas and with others who are part of his entourage. And uh, Paul has left them, the rest of them behind in the city called Berea, and he's gone on to Athens by himself. And he's waiting for everybody catch up, so what we see him as he steps into life in Athens, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. A some of Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among them whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Again, we've been talking about the mission of God. Here's what we're going to see about the mission of God this morning, that God's mission calls us, commands us, impels us as God's people to engage our world, to engage the culture around us with the hope that's found only in the gospel. It sends us into the world. We're going to see that, I think, this morning as we, as we see uh, what happens with Paul as he steps into this new situation in Athens. Okay, first, verse 16, when, when Paul first steps into Athens, we're going to look at what he sees, what Paul sees. What does he see when he comes to Athens? Uh, he would have seen the the, the amazing beauty of the city. It was world renowned. Okay, Athens was uh, the aesthetic center and, and intellectual center of the Roman Empire. It had, for hundreds of years, been this bright light of Greek culture. And it had been embraced by the Roman Empire, and everyone looked intellectually and aesthetically to Athens. In fact, for Paul, as he was, was traveling to Athens, if uh, the ancient reports are true, as, as he would approach the city, you would see up on the, up on the hill, up on the Acropolis, the, the uh, accumulation of all the, the temples in Athens, and the grandest of those would have been the Parthenon, the temple to Athena, and next to the Parthenon would, the, would have been this enormous statue of Athena. And she was so uh, tall and her spear was so tall that she held next to her that it was said that from 40 miles away you could see the sun glimmering on the on the metal tip of her spear as you approached the mighty Athens. Paul would have seen all this as he came to Athens, the center of the intellectual world. Uh, and as I think about Athens and, and the influence that it had on its entire culture, I am trying to think of a, if there's a comparable city in our own world that, that carries that same sort of freight and that same sort of weight, that same sort of world-class city that has that impact on... All of the cultural round, really, there's really only one city that I think can even come close to standing up to that. And I mean, you probably know what it is, but it, it's my own hometown of Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> uh, not for no reason known as the Athens of the South. Uh, we have a full-scale replica of the Parthenon in Nashville. Uh, when when you think of Nashville, what, what do you think of? You think of country music, right? Uh, you know, country music, that that great genre that is both philosophy and culture all bound up in, in one. Uh, you know, Athens had the Acropolis. We have, we have Music Row where you can go and you can see wax statues of all your favorite country music stars. It's not really so, so different, is it? Well, if you've never been to Nashville, I, I commend it to you. Athens was known the Nashville of the ancient world. But here's the thing as you walk into Nashville. Here's the thing as Paul walks into Athens. It's not the incredible beauty. And it's not the intellectual power and the culture that most strikes Paul. What does the text tell us when Paul walks into Athens? What does he see? He sees that the city was full of idols. Okay, as one commentator translates it, it, that the city was smothered in idols. Uh, a Roman, ancient Roman satirist said this about Athens. He said, when you go to Athens, it's easier to find a god than it is to find a man knee-deep in idols as he walks into Athens. Now, for them, obviously, these were, were very literal idols. They were images of stone and of gold and of silver. Uh, he would have gone to the Parthenon. He could have seen the temple, the uh, statue of Athena. Real, concrete idolatry. Now, uh, that, that feels very far removed for us, except I, I think the Bible actually invites us, if you were to look over the, the scope of Scripture, to a broader picture of idolatry. Okay, it is certainly this. Concrete statues... Representing deities that people worship, but it, it's much broader than that. Let me give you a, um, a working definition of idols. Idols are anything that compete with God for the affections of your heart, anything that would take center place, anything that you look to for meaning and security. Okay, now when we define it that way, it becomes obvious that an idol of the heart can be anything success, a relationship, a cause, a pleasure. All kinds of things, and we're going to talk more about idolatry next week. But here, we are. Paul stepping into Athens, and he is uh, he is overwhelmed by the city that is in the grip of idolatry. He sees beauty and intellect and culture and imagination, but all bent towards the wrong object. Uh, this past year, a I, I, familiar with P.D. James. She's she's typically a, a writer of uh, mystery novels. Uh, of a departure from her usual It's a science fiction book. And it tells the story of in the near future, suddenly, worldwide, and virtually overnight, all of the men in the world become sterile. And so, obviously, humanity gets to the point where it is no longer able to reproduce. And there comes a time when the last baby is born. And then years and years of this generation of kids growing up. Older generations dying off with no renewal, no new life, and no new hope. And one of the things that happens in the psychological fallout of this time with no babies as young women grow up and come to childbearing age and, and are and are not able to have children, some of them begin to walk around the streets of the city pushing little baby carriages with baby dolls in it. And you'll see to these dolls and, and say, oh, beautiful child you have, and they'll pick him up and pretend to feed him. And it becomes this elaborate uh, aspect of the whole society as they're in this incredible denial about what's happening to them. Now, what is so monstrous about that, this so right and good, this maternal instinct to love and to nurture. But all there is is this, this empty vain worthless thing, all this love being poured into something that is not real. And when Paul goes to the city of Athens, sees a world filled with that is what he sees. Praise and worship and the creativity of mankind, bent towards things that are empty and vain and worthless. Paul's no enemy of culture. He celebrates it, but what he mourns over he notices is all of this beauty Pointed away from the true and living God to hollow and false idols. That's what he sees. What does he feel? Paul sees this what does he feel. Back in verse sixteen. Paul was waiting in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. What does he what does he feel when he looks around and sees the world in the grips of this kind of idolatry? It says that his spirit was provoked. This is one of only two times in the New Testament this word's used. It's, it's not just angry. It's, it's a more complex emotion than that. It's not simply that he was disgusted and angry when he looks and sees pagan idolatry. I can't believe, I can't believe, this, I can't believe this world chasing after other gods. Anger and disgust. What would he have done? Maybe a couple things. He might have stormed out of Athens, shake the dust off his feet, go to the next town. Athens, that hope. Or he might have engaged them with this incredible angry tirade, bringing wrath against this fallen city. But he doesn't do either of these, and it's interesting because when Paul acts, when he feels what he does not feel, some sort of personal affront or threat or inconvenience, but instead he identifies the feeling of God himself. Okay, because this verb that's used—that you, use, that, you know—he was provoked. It's the same verb that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which would have been one of the Bibles Paul had on hand. In Isaiah 65, when it speaks of God's reaction to idolatry among his own people, it says that God is incredibly provoked by idolatry. Same word. So what we see happening here is that Paul sees what God sees, a city full of idols. Not only that, he feels what God himself feels, deeply disturbed deeply provoked deeply uh, worked up over the situation that he sees when he looks uh, at the city of Athens now what would you expect to happen next okay there's an interesting combination here someone who sees what God sees and he feels what God feels over that what's he going to do and this makes a lot of people really nervous because we live in a world where we, can, we don't have to look very far to see marks of serious, significant religious fanaticism. And that's across the world religions. That's Christianity too. We know and we can see pictures of what happens when we have a, what we think is a view of God's view of the world and the feelings of God's feeling of the world. How are we going to react? You might expect more violence and fanaticism. Paul knew that route. We've seen it in him. Remember when we pick up Paul in Acts chapter 8. What's he doing? Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is being hauled out of the city. Everybody's picking up rocks, and they begin to throw them at Stephen to kill him. And Paul is standing there holding everybody's coat, approving of what's going on. In the next couple chapters, Paul goes to the high priest, and he gets letters of permission to go pursue Christians throughout the empire in order to bring them to prison and bring them to death. Paul knows all about reacting with uh, a fanatical zeal, violent zeal to the world around him. Or you might think that he might withdraw, maybe not react in fanaticism, but withdraw. Paul would have known this too. Because a faithful Jew, as he talks about himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and good Jews, what did they do? They did not interact with Gentiles. They didn't eat with them. They didn't spend time. They thought they could become unclean because of them, and we've already seen in the Book of Acts the amazement with which the new Jewish believers are just stunned by the fact that God is Gentiles too. So Paul knows what it is to react violently, he knows what it is to withdraw, but he does something different. What would you expect someone who has the sees what God sees and feels what God feels? What would you expect for him to do next? To do in the face of idolatry? Well, the real question is, what does God do for idolatry? And what we find is that he pursues people in love in order to rescue them and bring them back into a restored relationship with him. That's what God does in the face of idolatry. And that, in fact, is the story of the whole Bible. When everything goes so wrong in Genesis chapter 3 and God's people fall, turn their backs on him, what does he do? He immediately comes pursuing after them in grace and in love, clothing them in their nakedness and giving them the promise of a redeemer who will come and bring them the healing they so desperately now need. What does he do when he finds Abraham in this pagan land worshiping pagan gods? What does he do? He comes and he reveals himself to Abraham and he says, I will be your God. And out of you, Abraham, I'm going to make a people that number more than the Stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. I'm calling you and your descendants to be My people. I will not let you go your own way. That's what He does when He comes to people time and again throughout the pages of the Old Testament as they fall into idolatry and apostasy. What does He do? He sends them rescuers, deliverers, that they might be restored to the land and to peace, that they might worship Him. And that's, in fact, what we see most clearly when God comes to us in the flesh in the person of His Son, Jesus, coming to rescue lost, broken, idolatrous people. Because what does Jesus declare when He steps onto the scene about His mission? He says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. What is He's idolatry? And when He feels provoked over it, what does He do? He comes And that's the mission that Paul steps into. He sees what God sees. He feels what he feels. And now he acts in line with his. What does he do? He comes and he engages Athens with the message and with the manner of the gospel. When Paul first comes into Athens, what does he do? Uh, He finds the idols of Athens. He comes to find the people of Athens. He goes where they go goes first to the synagogue. As we see Paul go to every new town, that's what he does first. He goes to the worshipers of Israel's God and speaks first to them. He goes where people are. But interestingly here, he doesn't stop there. Where does he go next? Look at the text. He goes to the marketplace. He goes to the most public place in Athens. He goes to the central civic center where everybody cross paths over the course of a day. In the marketplace, he goes there to proclaim the hope that is in Jesus. He goes there. And that's where he engages initially these uh, Greek philosophers. They ask him questions, and he has this back-and-forth dialogue the message that he's proclaiming. And in response to that, these people invite him to come to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was, was both an area of location in, in Athens, but it was also a council in Athens. It was the council of the city leaders, and they were the ones who were responsible to vet any new teaching that comes into Athens. They were the ones, the guardians of philosophy. They were, he was essentially coming to the heart of the university and having to explain himself to the academic. That's where he's going. They say, come and give an explanation to us here. He comes to the very intellectual hub of the entire Roman Empire. He comes there and proclaims the gospel there. And it just reminds us that we must be people that do what Paul, do, Paul does, which is to go where people are rather than waiting for them to come to us. Okay, now what would that look like for us? Uh, I get get in conversations, it, it, you might imagine, as you do, with neighbors and, and, and people you meet. And they, people in, invariably ask me what I do. I tell them I'm, I'm the pastor of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church over on, on Jamestown Road, and they say, oh, huh, wait, see, I'm like a little further down from Ironbound. and which you know, These are long-term residents of Williamsburg, and, and eventually when I say, it's across the street from the old bait shop that got painted pink and green. And then people go, oh, yeah. Okay, if you're new, you don't know that used to be right across the street from us, but that's what people, oh, yeah, you're that, you got, oh, that's right, that, that's that church up on the hill up there. And, and I'm reminded when I have these conversations that we cannot wait for people to come to us. It just doesn't work and it just won't happen. We must go where people are if we are going to be a part of the mission of God in Williamsburg, and Newport News, in this whole area. We must do what Paul does and not be afraid to do what Paul does, which is to go where the people are. And when he meets him, what does he do? Treats him with incredible dignity and respect because it says that he reasons with them. Okay, you've got Paul. You've got him seeing the idolatrous reality of his world, and you've got him provoked with God's own emotion over that. And what does it do? It sends him into respectful dialogue with the people around him. He goes and he proclaims and he speaks and has these back and forth conversations. He reasons with them. And the way, think, look at the way he does that. He speaks their language. Okay, notice that Paul never quotes the Bible here. And in the book of Acts, we see many speeches of, of people proclaiming uh, the reality of Jesus to crowds and they are quoting scripture because they're speaking to people who share that cultural background with them. But here, Paul knows, he stands up and quotes scripture, that they're not going to have any idea what he's talking about because that is not a shared cultural resource that they have. So what does he do? He speaks to them in their own language. Now, if you notice, though he doesn't use the word of scripture, what underlies his thought is deeply scriptural. It's deeply biblical. But it finds its expression in cultural idioms and cultural quotations and an engagement that people are able to listen to because it speaks to them from their own culture. Uh, he goes on, for example, he doesn't use any Christian lingo. What does he do? He uses theirs. He quotes to their poets, in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting Epimenides. And he goes on to quote a Stoic writer, Aratus. we are all his offspring. Okay, When the Greeks heard that, when the Athenians heard that quote, they heard quote from their own culture, and they also heard we are all his offspring. Well, who did Aratus mean? He meant Zeus. But what does Paul say? I come to proclaim to you what you have worshipped is unknown. I'm making known to you now. This God you thought was unknown. This is the true God. This is the true Lord. Creator of all mankind. This is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. He starts with that altar of an unknown God. And he says, isn't it interesting that you, this most religious people, you even have an altar to this thing that is unknown. Let me start there. What you do not know this window into your deep ignorance over the true reality of God. Let me start there and tell you about the true, the living, the creator, and saving God. Uh, Peter Berger's a Christian sociologist, and in his book, Rumor of Angels, he talks about signals of transcendence. Okay, and this was his term for uh, looking into culture and finding things that glimmer and speak and have echoes of our deep need for God and of even the beauty and glory of the gospel. And that's what Paul is doing. He's looking for signals of transcendence in his... He looks around and... We are all people fallen. We are all people created to know God. But in the words of Romans 1, he would later say, we all suppress the truth about God. We try to jam it down. We try to ignore it. We try to pretend it doesn't exist. But you can only do that so far. If you imagine... uh, what this happens... I've got kids, so we've got Plato. imagine, imagine Plato in your hands. You can only so far, but before it begins to seep through your as signals of transcendence. This society, this culture, it's trying to suppress the knowledge of God, but it's going to come leaking out because it's in people's hearts. Because deep down, people know that there is a real, true God, and He is. And so, what does Paul do? He looks to see signs of that. This altar of an unknown God, I'm going to start here because at some level these people know that there is something serious that they do not know. I will begin there. You know, what are the signals of transcendence in our, in our own culture? How would we find them? Well, we could do what Paul did, which is to know the culture. He quotes their own poets. He read their magazines, he read their poetry, he watched their TV, he went to the movies, he listened to their songs so that he would know the people to whom he came to speak. What do the art, music, and film, and talk shows of our culture tell us about not only our need for God, but how are these windows into the longing and connection and need that our culture has for the one true God? They are there. Where are they? And are we going to open our eyes to see them? He looks, and he speaks language. And he goes on, and he speaks the gospel in their language. He gives this uh, speech, and as all the speeches are in In the book of Acts, they're kind of digest summary versions, okay? So we don't have his whole speech here. What's interesting about this speech is it seems like he actually gets cut off in verse 31 because as soon as he mentions the resurrection, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. And they cut him off right there because the resurrection was such a foreign idea to them as Greek philosophers. But he goes on to speak again about the one Lord, this one God of heaven and earth. That's exactly what we... You're to notice and look back exactly what we proclaimed in our call to worship this morning. The one true God, the Lord of heaven and earth, He points them to that. He points them to the resurrection of Jesus. And what does He say about Jesus? Jesus is the returning Judge. That a day of judgment is coming, and Jesus is the one who at judgment. And they call the speech to a halt. But He does come and speaks the gospel into their culture. I want to say something about the manner in which He does this. Okay, because manner and message are inextricably intertwined together. Okay, they're not the same thing. They're inseparable. Now, maybe by means of contrast, that's not true in everything. Okay, for example, if you're in college, you go to math class. Okay, your math professor might be cold and distant and aloof and difficult and mean. Okay? But you can still learn math from that person right? And you're going to walk away and you might not be inspired to become a math professor yourself. You might not be moved to the depths of your soul. But you can learn calculus that way. Or uh, take another example. When, when, you, when you hear that, the doorbell ring or the, the door knocks in your office and you go and it's the UPS guy, your UPS guy might be having a terrible day. He might be in a bad mood. Grumpy, gruff, sign this. And you sign it. But then what happens? Grumpy UPS guy leaves and you have the package. Right? Okay, the message and the manner are separable. It doesn't doesn't matter. Even Grumpy Boy gives you the package that you wanted. But, it is not true in the same way with the Gospel. Because in the Gospel, the good news of God reconciling Himself to us through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus, bringing us a forgiveness that we can never earn on our own. It is different. The Gospel is... In the gospel, we see both the mess. there's a message that we proclaim, and there is a manner in which we proclaim it and live it, and they're intertwined. Message and manner, they're distinct, but they're joined together. Let me give you another illustration. When you when you give a present to somebody for their birthday, uh, you may give it to them in a, in a box with wrapping paper, and you try to make it look as, as beautiful as you can, and, and you hand that box to the person. They they rip open the paper and they open the box and they take the gift out. And what happens to the box? It gets thrown. It gets thrown away. But rather than that gift in a box, l- let me give us a- another picture. That's you know all, all analogies break down. But but here's, here's something. Rather than this box and a gift in the box that gets thrown away, imagine a music box. Can you you know music box? You beautifully carved box, maybe glass top, and you you open it up and and the pieces begin to move and this beautiful music comes out of the box. But here's the thing about a music box, you can't discard the box. Because if you do, you lose the music as well. Right? In fact, it's the top lid as you open it it's it's hinted. it's what makes the music sing. And for us as followers of Jesus when we bring the message of the gospel to others, it is much like that. Now, so God can do anything. You can take gruff, grumpy, sour Christians and still use that to bring hope of gospel to other people, but it is a, it is a false presentation, and it is God rescuing us uh, to demonstrate the gospel. Because what does he say? The gospel has come in to change us, to make us into entirely new people. And so when we, as followers of Jesus, go and bring the hope of the gospel to others in word and in deed, what people see is going to be bound up in the one that they see bringing the message to them. Do we give an accurate representation of the gospel that we come to proclaim, that we contain? There's two ways to get this connection, at least, get the connection of message and man wrong. Uh, one is the, the fire and brimstone preaching. Okay, now I've, I've got that in, in quotes because um, certainly Scripture does You know, that kind of preaching. uh, Years ago, uh, Camper and I were were both uh, on staff with a a Christian college ministry at the University of North Carolina. And in the center of campus, there was this area called the pit. And this is where Mm -hmm. debate and and protest would happen and uh, where somebody could come in from from off campus and they could say whatever they wanted to say. And every once in a while, every few months, a pit preacher would come. He was this guy who did the of all the campuses. Stand in the middle of there, and he would spew out these denunciations of the one who comes in his path. Speaking to them of the uh, unmitigated wrath of God, calling people out for the things they were wearing, assuming things about the life they must giving this incredible impression of uh, you are lost in unrighteousness, be the pit preacher, I am I've come to tell you the truth, and I love such things. And what did it do? shut people down. It made them mock. It made them turn away. Because what they heard was judgment without mercy. Now, if you notice, when Paul preaches, he does, in fact, say there is a day of judgment coming. Paul doesn't shy away from that. He says, I come to proclaim to you Jesus. And and he says, the resurrection, he is coming back one day to judge the world. That is most certainly an integral part of the Christian message that God comes to us, but there will be a day of But maybe you remember Jesus' words. This comes from Luke chapter 4, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. As so he stands up in the synagogue to preach his first sermon, here's what he does. He quotes Isaiah 61. For the Lord is upon me because he has claimed good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and everyone in there. Knew that scripture and whispered to themselves in the vengeance of our God. But they did not hear that on the lips of Jesus because he stopped that quotation midway through. And what was he saying? The day, the year of God's favor and salvation has come. There is a day of judgment coming, but it is not today. Today is the year of the Lord's favor and the offer of the gospel of reconciliation with God that goes forward to the world. Paul, when he steps in the middle of Athens and speaks about the coming judgment of God, it is coming one day, but he knows that today is the day that he proclaims the hope and life that come to us and are offered to us in Jesus. He calls everyone to repent, and he knows that that call is an life. So one way to go wrong is fire and brimstone. The other way to go wrong is uh, the sugar and spice, right? Um, and you know what that feels like when, okay, manner and message. I'm a Christian, and I'm supposed to sort of show the hope of the gospel, and that means I need to, uh, that means I need to never frown. I, I need to pull out my permagrin and, and fix it on my face. I, I can't let any of the cracks show. I can't let anybody know that I'm someone who still deeply struggles. I can't let anybody know that as I... This gospel to them, there are days when I so deeply doubt what I'm saying right now. I wrestle with this myself, but I can't let anybody know that. I've got to put on my smile. And we suddenly think, pit preacher, but we are in fact the salesmen, right? Got to strike up a good rapport. Got to put on a happy face so at the end of the day you can close the deal. You know what happens over time, if that's our picture of it. Uh, One option might be that eventually we're going to get fed up. We can't handle the fakeness of this anymore and we walk away. Or another option is that over time, our hearts will become harder and harder. As we become faker and faker and lose any sense of what it means to be an authentic human being in relationship with a real God, instead we've replaced it with this hollow shell of what it means to be a real person, we can get the combination of message and manner wrong. Let me give you a couple thoughts, though, us a couple thoughts about getting the manner and the message right. How do those things wed rightly? It happens when, when we see two things. One is our deep, very deep, and very present need. Jesus is not simply the solution to a problem that we had in the past that conveniently came in and put our life on the right track. Jesus is our living Savior and Lord, the one we have to look to every day. That's why we confess our sins together every week when we gather. We are not simply, though it may feel like it some days, going through the motions. We are proclaiming something profoundly true about the Christian life. The Christians are people who very much struggle and who very much stumble and who are always looking not at their own effort, achievement, but their Lord and Savior Jesus, who has brought them forgiveness and who was good for them in spite of them because they could not That is who Jesus is for us. We have to see our own, even present, deep need for Jesus. We've got to see the provision of Jesus who meets us exactly in the middle of those needs. How great is my need for reconciliation with God? How costly was it to God to bring me home? Well, it cost the life of Jesus broken on a cross, taking on God's wrath for me and for you. And He did it. He took the Father's back hand that you and I might receive the Father's embrace. As Paul would later write in Galatians chapter 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. How are we going to be able to wed this manner and message of the Gospel only if we know that we are people still very much in need of the ongoing grace and mercy of Jesus. And only as we know that we are people who have that, who have been given that in Jesus, that we are safe and secure and forgiven in the hands of a loving Father because of the work of Jesus for us. And when we know that, we're going to be able to go in and see a city full of idols and know that left to ourselves, we're only one step away from that. We're going to be able to look at a world like that around us. We're going to be able to feel what God feels. Deep sorrow and even provocation and anger over a world gone wrong. But we're also going to be able to step into then the actions of God. Rescue. Reconciliation. Forgiveness. Bringing the message and the hope of the gospel to a world around us that so desperately needs us coming to the world around us as people who are content recipients of this very same grace of God. People will then have the opportunity to see that and to see a gospel of hope lived out in a life clinging to that hope of Jesus. And finally, in conclusion, if we can do that, what are we going to see? What are the responses Look if Look are with me again in verse 32-34. through 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, "We will hear you again about this." So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. See, three responses: some people what he says, and some people stall, come back again another day, we'll, we'll hear more about this, and some people believe. And maybe those are. Maybe you know what it's like to see people mock. Maybe you know what it's like to see people stall. But do we remember, do we believe, that some people are also going to believe because our God is at work? His hands are not tied. And this same God who worked powerfully across the ancient world in the book of Acts, is the same God who's been at work for 2,000 years since then and all the years leading up to then, and is still at work today would we have eyes to see that? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that You would help us to see the world as You see it. And even to feel what You feel in response. And to respond as You respond. Would our lives be marked by a deep awareness of our need for You? And a deep grasp of your provision for us. May we know that our only testimony ever is that we were lost, but now we are found in Jesus. May we remember that that is good news for us. And it is good news for the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name.